This is the story of a man who's had it all in this life. Every earthly pleasure you could have, he's done it. He's been everywhere there is to be. He got a t-shirt while he was there. As full of a life as he lived, he can't lately seem to remember anything good. It's as though something's, some demonic entity or something's broke into the bank vault in his mind where he keeps all the good memories and emptied it out and then slammed shut the vault door behind him, locking him in to die alone with no air and no good thoughts. He closes his eyes and thinks back to his wife's face, hoping that'll bring solace. But he remembers trying to get at her from behind in a plush bed in the White House, not being able to perform in a way that it never really happened to him, and in frustration he donkey punches her. She's one of those tough foreigners and she don't take no shit. So she took right the fuck off on him, latched onto his ear, bit off a chunk of his face. He remembers screaming out for security and that he needs medical attention and all kinds of staff ran in and he reached his hand out for help and they looked down and they said, you don't live here anymore, beat it. He winces at the memory and opens his eyes and he's back in a dilapidated farm shed miles outside of Guadalajara with about half a dozen of his greatest amigos, his lifelong friends. Just a room full of MS-13 face tattoos and 40 ounces. He kind of grits his teeth and pulls out a notepad and a pen and writes down the name of a Ukrainian fellow. A guy that sold him his wife all those years ago. He folds the paper up and hands it to his best hitter, who then proceeds to kneel before a statue of St. Murda and light a candle. The man stands up and heads to the door, turning around to fist bump his own chest and to kiss his fingers and throw him into the air. Amira Mora. And all of his hombres nod solemnly as he walks out into the desert sun, squinting looking out there thinking how he would die alone now, how there was nothing left. Just then, like a phoenix out of the aeroplane and straight into his hopeless heart, he saw the shadow of a woman in a dress suit. As she stepped into the light, he saw that it was his old nemesis, Hillary Clinton. Here to finish me off, he figured. Well, bearing his chest, let's do it. She hits a cigarette and smiles knowingly, and there's something in that smile that ignites a fire in his heart that he hasn't felt in a while, and he, she shoves her hand down his pants and grabs him by his orange curlies and pulls him in. Let's burn it down, Donnie. Let's burn it all the fuck down. For the first time since he can remember when, he felt like grabbing something by the pussy. And together they walked off into the desert, heading north towards the U.S. border with canisters of gasoline and matches. Hello, and welcome to Mostly Sober with me, your host, William Mosser. What you just heard was me making a joke about how the country is run by a uniparty of oligarchs.
I just wanted to try and start the episode off with some levity because I didn't want to go straight into a serious topic. Because I do have something, uh, you know, lightweight serious that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I usually don't mind trolls, you know. And I get where they're coming from in my case. Uh, some people are just easy targets. and I belong to a uh, community of uh, cryptid enthusiasts, I guess. Uh, amateur cryptozoologists. I'm into Bigfoot and shit. And, um... I can see, like I said, I can see why people would make light of that and poke fun at it. I'd like to see them tell their jokes to a fucking Bigfoot's face. That would be good to see, but... It seems anymore that I get on uh, to the forum, the community that I'm a part of online, and it's just the whole page is just littered lately with just jokesters. And the reason it bothers me a little bit is because a lot of these people in these communities believe what they saw. You know, even if you don't believe what they saw, they believe what they saw in the woods. They've had people, I know, I've known people who were avid outdoorsmen and hunters and what have you. They, they loved the outdoors, they loved hiking, and um, I've known several people that they just can't really do that stuff like they used to because they had a strange and often terrifying, unexplainable phenomenon happen to them in the woods. So, I get why people would make jokes about people that are into Bigfoot, but, you know, this is something that's affected a lot of people's lives, and while I've kept the lid on this for some years, it's affected my life. I've had a personal encounter with a cryptid. And I guess kind of as a motion of solidarity, but mostly just uh, to try and help myself heal from the experience. I, I want to tell my story with my, my encounter with a, a strange cryptid, something I, I can't to this day quite explain. It was about 12 years ago, I reckon. I was a young man back then. And, uh... I had gone to school with this girl, we'll say her name's Leanne, and uh, I'd always looked at her as kind of out of my league, like I never thought like, oh man, I'm going to try and holler at her. But uh, one, she had some mutual friends, me and her did, and uh, one day, while talking to some of my friends, she was there, and she overheard us talking about a uh, train bridge in Cementville that we had been jumping off of into the water, into the Silver Creek. And she told me that she thought that sounded like fun, and she'd like me to take her. So I did. Not just me, though. It was me and her in one car went up there, and then uh, another car with about three of our buddies. Yeah, three of our buddies. And we pulled off, uh, you know, onto the little side road, and then walked down the train tracks. There's wood line either side of you walking down about just like a half a mile, and then you get to the little train bridge over Silver Creek. And then, you know, after the train bridge, it's more tree line as far as the eye can see either side of the tracks. And We had a tent set up with beer in it. We were smoking tough. We were drinking a little. And uh, we were jumping off the bridge just having a good time. And then uh, the friends that had drove in the other car, they told us, you know, hey, we're uh, fixing to go up the road and get some munchies or what have you from the corner store, so... They started making their way back, leaving me and Leanne behind, just the two of us. And I was 20 at the time. I'd been noticing how great she looked in her bathing suit. I was just 
having fun, you know. And I I was quite a drinker back then, so I was kind of annoyed and surprised when I started feeling this weird fog set over me, almost like a nauseousness, but like a, I don't even know how to explain it, it was almost like a fearful kind of nauseousness, but not really, it was very odd, very odd kind of miasma that had drifted up my nostril holes, and I just wasn't feeling right, and I, I told her, I said, Leanne, I gotta go grab something out of the tent, and I wanted to tell her that I wasn't feeling good, so, I go into the tent, you know, crawl in, zip it up, and I lay my head down, I'm gonna close my eyes just for a few minutes, and it's getting dark at this point, and, uh, well, I hear the tent unzip, and to my surprise, Leanne comes in, I suppose, and she unbuckles my belt, and, uh, you know, starts riding me, and, I mean, I was stoked off this, I was a young man, I never saw that coming, and, uh, she's riding me, and then, uh, I hear this I hear this splash in the water, so something's just jumped in the water, and try to tell Leanne to quiet down for a second, I want to hear, and she's just riding me harder and harder, now she's like a four foot, uh, I'm sorry, four foot, one inch tall, no, she's like a five foot, five, five foot, two inch tall person, like 120 pounds maybe, I don't know, she wasn't very big, and she started riding me harder and harder to the point that it was like pulverizing my hips, I mean, she was coming down on me like, with a lot of force, and it was kind of hurting pretty good. She was putting a hurting on me, y'all. She was putting a good hurting on me. And then I hear something uh, kind of come up out of the water, and I, I hear the gravel a little ways away. I hear it crunching as though something's walking towards us. And now at this point, I mean, you got—I still got this weird fog settled over me. I'm kind of trying to hold it together with Leanne riding me. I'm trying. But I'm getting a little fearful here. I'm saying, hey, something's outside. Be quiet for a second. And then the most frightening thing happened. A big hairy hand just clasped shut over my face, muffling my voice. You know, I tried to scream out and I couldn't. And I'm getting rode harder and harder. And I get rode to climax. And as I do, I hear just above me and all around me just, just this primordial howl of pleasure i mean just something not on not of this earth i mean i've never heard a sound like that it, it sounded like a demon riding the devil's dick to pleasure town it was very unsettling so much so that i passed out in fear well um evidently the guys had come back from getting their snack their snack attacks and them and Leanne came up to the tent and unzipped it, and I guess found me there, you know, just passed out, naked with, covered in bodily fluids, just, they just assumed I had just gotten drunk and ran to the tent and abused myself to, after seeing Leanne in her bathing suit, I don't know, they just, so I got wrecked on quite well, quite, quite often. For a while after that, there was a lot of roast sessions that um, were that happened at my expense. Well, surprisingly, Leanne didn't even like stop talking to me. So we, she went to college just for like two and a half years. I don't think she finished, but she came back and we linked up and we actually went down to the bridge again. I was trying to think of like anything else to do, but I was like, well, I mean, there's, I mean, in Southern Indiana, it's, 
back then at least, and I'm sure it's not much different now, but back then it, there wasn't much to do. It was either do Oxycontin or jump off a bridge with your friends. It was one or the other, so we took the high road, and we went back down there to the train tracks. Me and her and a friend of mine, we'll say his name's Derek because his name's Derek. And we were down there, and we were jumping in the water. It was fun, whatever. Done it a million times at that point. And um, I got that strange feeling again. It was like, but it was more palpable this time, as though it was like in the air. Like I got a whiff of it, and I was. It was that strange, nauseous fearfulness. I don't even know how to explain it. And I, I looked over, and I saw a ways down the tracks. In between, uh, down the down the ways on the tracks, about a hundred yards away, I seen this figure, and it was a blur. And I was like, I thought it was a person, like in one of those uh, army suits that snipers crawl around in, that looks like they're covered in seaweed or something. It's what I, th I thought it was somebody standing there like that. So it like spooked me. I jumped back, and then my eyes kind of focused, and I saw what appeared to be. I mean, it was clear as day. I saw this bipedal canine type creature it had a wolf's head and kind of like a human body sort of but it had the backwards haunches on its legs like a dog and it had teats like a female so I knew it was and I couldn't believe what I was seeing and as I'm trying to take this in and pretty sure I was holding my breath and then I see a couple more smaller shapes come out of the wood line next to it and stand around it and it's like about half a dozen of these smaller ones and now where the the big one, the female, the big one was just all black, like blacker than should even be possible. I mean, there was no shine to it. It was just darkness. It was just this dark canine, you know. And they, the smaller ones, they were more like, they were a little, they had like brown kind of with reddish in it, like an auburn. I guess kind of like my hair, sort of like that. And they were... They were a little more human, almost. They didn't have the backwards haunches that I could tell. Maybe they were just too small or too far away. And Their hair was thinner so that you could kind of see the skin underneath. Their muzzles were shorter. You could see their skin under their hair where their hair was thinner. And I could see that they were, like, you know, I guess, like, white, like kind of a Caucasian color. But just from the waist up, from the waist down, they were black, like me again. And then another just... One of the most terrifying things in my life. This huge shape. I mean, it was head and shoulders above the female. It came loping out of the tree line and stood next to them. And it was just, it was black like her, but it had like some gray modeled in it. And it was not a female. And it was big and it was intimidating. And it, it looked at her and then it, and then it looked at me. And then it, and then it looked at the small ones. And then it looked at me again. And then its lips started coming up like it was just... It had this snarl, like this real just, I'm gonna gut you look. And I was just shaking my head like, no, please, God. And it lifts its hand up. And it points this big clawed hand at me. And I just... The only thing I could think was to point at my friend Derek, because, I mean, he looks just like me, right? We got confused for each other all the time in high school. We went to high school with a bunch of jocks and rednecks, and we were, like, two, like, emo or hardcore kids, however you want to put it, just kind of alternative. 
And so I just, I'm like pointing at him. I'm like, he's, he's the one you want. And it, it kind of leans over and looks around down the bridge and sees, and it points at him and kind of looks at me a question. I'm like, yeah, him. He's the, and so it just starts leaping and bounding towards us. And I'm hollering at them to get out of the water. And uh, Leanne puts her hand up and I help her out of the water. And then Derek puts his hand up and I pretend not to notice. And me and Leah just run and he's trying to get out of the water. And that thing just, it was on him. I mean, I don't bear any responsibility for it. I mean, I'm pretty sure we were going to get away and he was going to die either way. I mean, he it, it is what it is, you know. And as we're running, you know, I'm looking back and I, I see the female standing back there in the distance and it's doing like the heart hands like uh that Yamasaki guy that referee used to do like it's doing heart hands at me and so we got in the car and we got away and that was the terrifying experience in the woods that changed my life forever now folks if you'd like to uh read some more dogman encounters i might suggest uh linda godfrey has some great books out she's got some great you know, legitimate encounters. Not that my encounter was fake or made up. It just wasn't not fake. And so I wanted to give her a shout-out because she's, I don't think it's a problem me saying this. I don't think it's a secret or anything. But she's got some, uh, I guess, relatively severe health problems, small things to a giant. And I just wanted to shout her out because she's a real nice person. She's a great journalist. She writes about what she knows. She writes about a variety of topics. And I'm sure we all can agree or not, whatever, that there are a short supply of real journalists, and she's one of those, and more importantly than that, she's just always been a nice person, she helps people with their projects, she helps people get their projects started, and as big as she is in the cryptid community, she seems like she has no problem responding to, you know, questions and stuff, she'll talk to you about stuff and help you, and just would be great if you could just say, if you like this podcast, that's how you can support it. Just say a little prayer for Miss Godfrey. Uh, and check out her books if you want or don't. I don't care. I mean, you got to get, you know, comfortable making your own decisions, man. That's that's growth, you know. I remember in early recovery, I was scared to make any decision. Like, they say that it's inherent in every human being that they know right from wrong, but you start questioning yourself, and it's just like, wow, I'm maladjusted to this life. I've been doing did drugs for years, acting like a child, and then when I had to stop, it was like I just literally didn't know what to do or where to go or who to ask what to do or where to go. But I thank God today for those hard lessons I had to learn early in sobriety because if I would have just gave up and gone back to using, I'd probably be dead by now. I don't know really why I survived. Hopefully I find out before it's all over with. Maybe it was just a chance. Maybe God has something bigger in store for me. I remember uh, back in the day, you know, I'd be using drugs with homies. And I look back and a lot of people that I was hanging out with, I didn't want to hang out with. It was just heroin made me. Heroin used to make me do all kinds of things. It was like my alarm clock. It told me who to hang out with, etc. But... Every now and then someone would wander into my life who was like just there for the good time. But they were they were down to ride, you know, they were down for the bad times too. They just wanted to hang out, you know. And just fucking tie one off. 
I'm not saying that's like a good quality in a person. I'm just saying they weren't out to. There was people that I had met that weren't out to rob anybody. They weren't out to do any of that old funky shit that's you know often associated with drug addicts for a good reason. Uh, and it's like it feels like those people always just suddenly died. It's like you'd be hanging out with them every day. They'd be at my house. I'm thinking of some specific people. One cat in particular. And he would just be there, you know, and he didn't say much. We'd just be getting high every now and then. He'd just look over and say something goofy. He was just a good dude. And then one night he was like, I'll be back. And I got a call later that he overdosed and died. They found him in like a parking garage or something. And he was like two or three years younger than me. And I was like 25, I think, around there. So, I mean, he was early 20s. That's too young to be dying like that, especially as nice and good-natured of a person as he was, and, you know, I'm sure his family went through it over that, I'm sure they had tried to help him, you know, and that's always sad to see how you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped, you know, and truly, like, the thing that's most tragic about this type of stuff, the thing that's really hits home and just hurts my heart deeply, wounds me, it's not, you know, the people that got taken early and that died. It's the people that survived. It seems like some of these fucking people, they just they just should have died, but they didn't. You know what I mean? They just have this hatred that drives them. I mean, they were sketchy before the drugs, if there was ever a time they weren't on them. I mean, they're just, just bad-hearted people, just seem to survive the longest in that game. And I'm not trying to say I'm better than anyone because I got mostly sober. I mean, I, I get in over my head over all kinds of petty things, but I've, I've sort of learned how to live simply, and I'm grateful for that today. I, I go on uh, walks most evenings. I'll go on a walk around the block a few times, and can't really tell you why. There's just something about it that just helps me keep moving, helps me get out of my head because it's a dangerous neighborhood up there. I mean... I don't live in the best neighborhood, but it's better than the neighborhood in my head, so I try not to get lost up in there, and I was walking one day, uh, I was walking one day, I just left my subdivision, kind of, there's a, there's a coin laundry and then a waffle house, right, like at the end of the street in my apartments before it ends and becomes like a main road, and I'll never forget, I was walking one day, and I seen out of the corner of my eye this, this, or just right here in the middle of the city, I mean, small city, whatever, but you just, I seen this creature just loping out from behind the coin laundry, and it was that fucking dog man back to get me. No, I'm just kidding, it was this girl I used to do drugs with. She definitely is a creature, though, and, uh, she, her name, we'll say, is Alyssa, and Alyssa came... Um, she came scuttling on up to me. She's one of those people that are just driven by hatred and pettiness. And who, when I see her, I just get mad because I just know that they're gonna say something that makes me mad. And that—that's my own shit. I gotta—I gotta learn how to keep my side of the street clean and not worry about what other people's side of the street looks like. But she scurried on up to me when she saw me. You know, it had been a couple years, and I guess when one dr drug addict's out wandering the streets and they see another person that they used to do drugs with out walking around, they'd probably just assume that they're on the same old bullshit as them. 
Now she's got this look on her face like there's just some urgent news that she must tell me right this instant. And she says, hey, hey man, hey I saw, she says, I saw on social media that you and your old lady have been hanging out with Courtney. Now, Courtney is a girl that I knew briefly before I got sober, and we did drugs together every day, pretty much. And, um, Courtney, uh, she got sober recently, which is great, because she's a good person, so it's crazy to see one of the good ones get sober, so, I mean, obviously she's probably done some heinous shit in her life, otherwise she would have died. So she says, I saw you've been hanging out with Courtney, because we've been, me and my old lady been talking to her again because she got sober, and it's just, it's good to have people like that around, you know, that are doing good like that, and that have a story and everything, and so she says, I just, Alyssa says, I want you to know that I was in, I was in county some months ago, and I saw that she snitched on somebody. Oh my god, Courtney snitched on somebody? How do you know this? She said, yeah, uh, I was in county and I was locked up with somebody. And I said, who? And she said, well, I don't remember their name, but they had paperwork showing where Courtney had snitched. And so that was all I needed to hear. I said, all right, well, let's fucking get the whip and let's go pull down on this bitch and light her the fuck up, dude. I don't care who she's standing next to, they're going down too, dude. Everyone in the cut is getting lit the fuck up. And then we're going to hang her ass from the tallest fucking tree so that people see her from miles off and they know that they should think twice before snitching on a motherfucker. I mean, really, what the fuck are we doing? I mean, that's terrible if it's true, which I don't think it is. I mean, I hate to think that a friend of mine snitched on somebody when they were out of their mind on drugs, just... Having somebody sit in jail while they're out here free, I mean, that's terrible energy. I don't want that around me, but I mean, what the, like, this girl is out here walking the streets, homeless, just constantly find it, trying to find drugs to consume, and she thinks that, like, she's just on a legitimate assignment. Like, this is, her job is to walk around checking people to make sure that they're throwing up the correct gang signs and keeping they motherfucking mouth closed about the crimes that them and they homies committed. You know? Like, what successful person... Like, this is Bobby. He just opened his, his own business. He's a CEO, and... You know, he hates snitches. You don't. I mean... Come on. Like, her whole family's just pulling down on her, trying to intervene. Like, look, Alyssa... We want you to come home. We miss you. Your children miss you. Don't you miss your children? And I, I can just see her just rolling her eyes and sighing real tough like, do I miss... Fuck yeah, I miss my children. You think I don't miss my children? Of course I miss my children, but there's motherfuckers out here snitching, dude. You help me get these snitches off the street. You help me get people to stop telling, and then I can come home and raise my kids like I want to. But, you know, again, I don't know why I was spared the, you know, quick end and the terror, the terrible fate of prison or early death that befalls a lot of substance abusers. So, I figure I probably shouldn't judge why she's still out there and doing the things she's doing. And I, 
I wish her the best, and I don't really mean it, but I, I grip my teeth and wish her the best, and she scurries back off behind the coin laundry or whatever, and I continue walking around the block and just trying to put it out of my mind, and it actually, it keeps popping up, you know, it kept popping up, and I'm like, what the fuck does she, why is she trying to, why are people so miserable, you know, again, people can't just let people have the good shit, they gotta... People are miserable and they want other people to be... I guess misery loves company. You know, the cliches are old and played out, but maybe it's because they're true. Whatever. But, you know, so I'm trying to put it out of my head for weeks and then I see her on social media doing uh, one of those, you know, live streams. And uh, she's she's on a live stream and her eyes are all crisscrossed in the back of her head. I mean... She was looking like she was on future drugs, like she was just real, real out there this particular day, and she's slurring and nodding out on live feed, talking about, uh, you know, she's over, she's across the bridge in the city, and she's talking about how this business that she had been staying at, because everything was closed, this was during COVID, this was during the BLM protest when those cops murdered Brianna Taylor, rest in peace. And and she's her problems are just so much greater than that, you know. So she's on this live feed bitching about how this business is kicking her out after she's been there for weeks behind the building. She's got like a whole little I don't even know how to explain her setup. I mean, it was like a loading dock, so it like kinda was like a ramp down into a little cubby. She just had, like, a bed set up and all kinds of shit, like a thing to keep the rain off of her. It was nice. It was real nice. And uh, she's bitching about her squatter rights and all this stuff and how they're kicking her out, you know? And then the whole time there's people with megaphones, like, protesting police brutality and systematic racism. And she's just bitching about this business kicking her out, and she goes over to where they're protesting, and she's like, see, these people are with me. This is what they're bitching. And they're all just like, everyone who's getting close to her is like, junkie cracker bitch, please get the fuck away from us. We're trying to have a legitimate protest. And she's like, yeah, they got my back. And she's throwing a fist up in the air and shit, and then falling asleep, and then waking back up, and just telling everybody on her live feed how unfair it is that she finally had her own place. And that now she's getting evicted. And so she's saying that this is what she needs to happen. This is what she's proposing to everyone watching. And there's a lot of people watching this live feed. And she's saying, I need everybody watching to donate 7 or $8. And she says that she's done the math. And that if everyone donates 7 or $8, then she'll have ten grand to open a house out in the country for all the homeless people to go to and to have a place to go, which, I mean, obviously it doesn't make sense. Obviously she's out of her mind. I mean, what are the homeless people, I mean, are they going to have a playground there in refreshments? I mean, they've got to have amenities that she hasn't thought this through. And so she's bitching and going cross-eyed and asking for money, and there's literally like a hundred and something comments. There's like 110 comments under this that are like all the same. They're like, girl... I ain't gonna send you no money, but if you need a ride somewhere to get help, I'll take you there right now. And I just didn't see how that 
line of conversation or whatever was productive. I mean, I think their hearts were in the right place, but I just I just didn't think that was the way to go about it if you're trying to help somebody. So I took I jumped at the opportunity to help somebody that I normally wouldn't want to help because it hurt my heart. I mean, this is somebody's daughter, like, and she's out here, I mean, frankly, making a fool of herself, looking stupid. And, I mean, I'm not trying to judge because I could have easily wound up there, and I just, and my heart was aching for her. So I commented, and I said, look, twerk into the camera, and I'll send you seven bucks. And so people got, like, people got mad over this, saying that if she twerked into the camera, I would give her $7. And people were, like, pissed about this. And I just don't think they realize the deep spiritual well that I was, like, filling a cup up from and handing it to her. Like, I was coming from a profoundly spiritual place with this. You should twerk into the camera, so and I'll and then I'll send you the seven bucks. I mean, there's so many life lessons in this. I, I mean, I just don't even know where to start. It's like a whole. I mean, there's accountability. I'm teaching her that. That I mean, everything works on a reward system. Nobody does anything for free. Like you know, nobody starts going to church because it doesn't work. Like they're still being a piece. No, their life turned around when they started going to church, so they continue going to church or. You know, nobody goes to work, and their boss is like, look, I'm not going to be able to give you a paycheck this week. And they're like, well, that's fine. I'll get it the next week. You know, I'll get a paycheck next week, right? No, there's a reward system for everything, you know. And I feel like I taught her this, frankly. I feel like I taught her accountability and uh, all kinds of things. And so that's basically what this show is about. It's about principles, you know. It's about principles being... They're ideas that you actually put into action. So it's like when you look at the sky and you see that the clouds are motionless. And then you look at the sky, but now there's a telephone pole in the foreground. And since this telephone pole is in a fixed position, you now can tell that the clouds were actually slowly moving by as to where before they looked stationary. So this pole is kind of like principles in the way that they give you a fixed position to look at life from, you know. They give you something to stand on, and folks, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. So, until next time, I want you all to be safe. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.